Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. Tonight's show, I will be joined by Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. We're going to break down the lost Baylor, talk about why Florida needs to make some schematic coaching adjustments on defense. Uh, we don't think that they're really right now in the best position to succeed on that side of the ball. We'll do a big coach's corner on the pack line defense and answer a bunch of listener questions. We will also preview a huge game um, against Mississippi State. Uh, it's a long show. The, the Miss State preview is not really going to start till about minute 55. So if you just want to listen to the Miss State preview because the game is, you know, 24 hours from when the pod drops, I totally get it. Come back and listen to the Baylor listener question segment uh, later in the week. Thank you all for listening. Remember to rate us on iTunes, Spotify, all those things. It really matters. Uh, we appreciate you so much. Bye-bye. Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. I'm with Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Uh, we have a lot to talk about on this show. A ton of listener questions. Uh, Florida's disappointing performance against Baylor. A huge game in the O'Connell Center Tuesday night against Mississippi State. But I think um, the only place to start in basketball really is, is uh, the tragic passing of Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gianna, uh, seven other people uh, on the helicopter with him that goes down yesterday, uh, I wanted to say that, that Kobe is – I'm not glazing over anything. It's just that it's a podcast, and, and it, he's a complicated figure, but he, a larger-than-life figure in basketball. Uh, he, I think, is the greatest scorer of all time. Um, there's a take. Uh, I think that his work ethic is just – incredible insatiable desire to win uh the way he did superhuman things the 81 versus the raptors the the comeback from the achilles that he dropped 60 in his last game eric um the uh the rings you know just the mamba mentality that that you know you could just outwork everybody and also be really really good uh it's part of the reason i fell in love with basketball watching kobe bryant and I can tell you, before I let Eric say something, that uh, I think like four or five deaths of people that I have never met have affected me emotionally. And I was a mess yesterday. Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably only the, the second one that has really, really phased me of, of someone I've never met. And, and, probably the fir- and it would be the first uh, sports related for me. And, uh, yeah, just something that, uh, you just see that, uh, uh, when that many people go down in one accident, it's, it's terrible. And I feel for all the families and I was, I was reading, uh, reading a lot of tweets from, from players who, who had their, from, uh, you know, baseball players who, who had their coach, um, die in the accident as well. And that was, you know, another level of heartbreak after, yeah. you know, focusing a lot on the Kobe stuff yesterday. But, uh, one thing that I just, uh, I just think that Kobe really embodied was just competitiveness. And I think in the modern basketball universe, like, I'm not sure if everyone loves watching the NBA and seeing a team get blown out by 25 and the best player on the losing team goes and daps up the best player on the winning team. And I think that there is an element where as fans, sometimes you, you look at, uh, you look at how buddy buddy players are and you, uh, you kind of think like, man, you know, maybe this isn't uh, this isn't the competition level you desire. And I think that Kobe was someone who just embodied competition and, and uh, he was someone who I thought, you know, 
brought out the best in a lot of his teammates. And, uh, and I think that, yeah, that's just something that, uh, that I think the game uh, misses a little bit these days and, and something that he really embodied is just that competitive spirit. And um, I also just kind of more recently uh, seeing the way that he was a father to his, uh, to his children. I mean, that just makes it, I, I feel like he was the ultimate father. That was what kind of what he decided to do after his playing days was go from being Superman on the basketball court to being just like super dad. And I thought that was amazing. And, uh, and also the way that he just really like championed women's basketball and, and the way that he, um, he, like, there's, there's some people that, you know, they, you'll, you'll see like some story with ESPN that they'll be, they'll, they'll say something, you know, positive about the WA NBA. They'll say something, po- you know, shout out, you know, UNESCO at, at Oregon or something. But, uh, you know, he was someone that you like saw at all the UConn games. You saw him at a, at South Carolina, uh, women's games. You saw him supporting, uh, women's college basketball and you saw him supporting the WNBA. And I, I, yeah, I just thought that was something that was incredibly admirable. And I, I hope someone, uh, can kind of keep that going, keep that going for him. Yeah. I mean, I, I, the point about him and seeing him as a dad, uh, definitely resonates with me and Kobe had four daughters and, um, I have two and that's really like the most important thing in life is like, I think when you, when you pass on is like, what kind of, what kind of, if you're a parent, I think it's, it's how did you treat people? And what kind of father were you to your children? And, and Kobe really embodied that. And so, uh, I don't know. It just seemed like the only way to start the podcast, Eric, to, to kind of pay personal tributes to uh, to the great Kobe Bryant. So uh, maybe we can on to, on to better things, uh, hopefully, for, for Florida basketball fans. And that would be, uh, you know, they're – the Gators didn't play great uh, Saturday night. I think that was probably the most disappointing thing. I just thought, honestly, one of their – a lot of it had to do with who they were playing, I think. But also, you know, Florida can play better than that. I think so. I think that uh, Baylor definitely proved why they're the number one team in the country with their play on both ends of the court. I just thought that uh, uh, the amount of guards they have was just spectacular. Like, uh, you yeah. know, they're – Florida's, you know, Florida's, Florida starters can kind of hang with them. Uh, but when they go to their bench and they just keep starter caliber guards coming out, there's just not many other teams that can do that in the country. And they also, you, you know, I look at their lineup and, and they don't have a lot of like wings. They've got a lot of guards and then they've got like some nice front court pieces. Uh, so I thought, you know, maybe their roster is not composed super, super well. Uh, but then you see against Florida where it's like, uh, you know, they're, they're smaller perimeter players. They can battle bigger wings. They can really protect the, uh, protect the paint. They can guard the basketball. And then they have big men that really play their roles. They've got, you know, shot blockers, rebounders, you know, excellent stretch four with mayor. And just, uh, uh, yeah, I just thought that, uh, they're, they, they looked incredible. Uh, they were perfectly suited to take advantage of Florida's weaknesses. And, uh, yeah, ultimately you saw a game where obviously Florida started really well, uh, but after the first, you know, 10 minutes or so, uh, it just really looked like Florida was not going to be able to get back into this one. Yeah. I mean, Florida defended really well. And then, uh, Baylor made some tough jump shots, Eric. And it seemed like when Baylor made some tough shots that it loosened Baylor up as an older team, like, okay, we're, we're going to be fine. And Florida's defense almost seemed deflated by it. And then also, like, just schematically, there's some issues, which you wrote about at Gator Country. So why don't we start with that? 
Yeah, so, uh, I mean, just to be quite honest, I, I found a new subscription-based stat service that uh, does a lot of lineup analytics and lineup uh, kind of like on-off data. You can look at five-man combinations. It has opened up a whole new world, and uh, I very, <laughs> much look, very much look forward to writing about it uh, and, uh, and talking about it here, too. But uh, essentially, you can just look at what lineups are good for Florida. You can look at every single stats uh, stat you want and look at five-man combinations or four-man or three-man or two-man combinations. Um, or you can look at one single player and you can say, hey, what did they do when they were on the floor uh, versus how did the team play when they were off the floor? So uh, just going through players uh, in, uh, uh, in the, uh, the Baylor game, uh, there was one player that Florida was significantly worse uh, defensively when he was on the floor, and that was Kerry Blackshear. Uh, oh. So I thought, well, maybe that was, uh, uh, maybe that was a one-game sample. And so well, the first thing I did was I looked at every other player and I said, uh, hey, like, is this is this like a fluke? Is it like, hey, did Blackshear get caught in some tough, mat, some tough lineups? Uh, but there's no one else on Florida who is anywhere near the negative impact that he, that he appeared to have. So I was like, well, let's look at uh, let's look at the LSU game. Uh, same thing, uh, even worse actually, and no player was even close. And then I looked at Missouri, and uh, it was the same thing. So I was looking at all these losses, and those were you know games that we talked about how teams were really really picking on Terry Blackshear and making him guard and screen and roll. Uh, and you just look at uh, uh, you look at you look at the numbers on and off. Uh, they were they were very very poor. And you look at I was even looking at the same combination. So you you think about the starting five that Florida has used, uh, and then you know it's usually you, you know you look at that same starting five. And uh, if the the kind of most used lineup other than that was Kerry Blackshear coming out and then Scotty Lewis getting on the floor, uh, and th- those lineups were were really different. So it just any way that I looked at the uh, Anyway, that I kind of looked at the data, it was just looking like Florida was defending significantly worse uh, with Kerry Blackshear on the floor. And there just wasn't any other players that I could really point to as saying like, hey, this is, um, you know, it's this combination of players. Uh, it was really just like, wow, like uh, things are not looking good. So so uh, the numbers that um, uh, I'll kind of read them out, but uh, against Baylor with Florida on the court or sorry, with Baylor, with Blackshear on the court. Uh, Florida was giving up 1.24 points per possession and with him off the floor, he was, they were allowing 0.87. So that was 1.24 points per possession with Blackshear on the floor, then 0.87 with him, with him off, uh, with LSU, they were giving up 1.125 with Blackshear on the floor with Blackshear off. They were giving 0.9. And the ultimate example was Missouri where with Blackshear on, they were giving up 1.51 points per possession and one point per possession with them off. So overall, in those three games combined, with Blackshear on the floor, Florida was giving up 1.33 points per possession, and with him off, uh, they were giving up 0.92 points per possession. So you look at a game like Baylor, where it seemed like they couldn't guard anyone. You even look at LSU and Missouri. Uh, with Blackshear off the floor, they actually were, were guarding pretty well. 0.92, that, that's a good defensive points per possession against really good defenses. Um, but with him on, it was 1.33 points per possession. So that's, that's, that's really poor. And one thing that's been really interesting, cause I went back to the, to the film just to see if I was missing something really obvious. Like, uh, it, you, you know, if there was like some other subs that I was missing in the lineup data that like, you know, maybe there's something weird, you know, maybe it was like, they just suddenly put in all their ringers when Blackshear got off the floor and there wasn't <laughs> really anything like that. And, and one thing that's actually really interesting, um, in, an unintended consequence or result of Kerry Blackshear's foul trouble is that you are actually seeing like 
because because a lot of times you know you see um one team's starting group goes against the other team's starting group bench players come in at about the same time uh and, and like you almost see teams rotations kind of mirror each other but because of Kerry Blackshear's foul trouble you saw him leaving the starting lineup and having someone else kind of enter it like you know three or four minutes in uh still going against other teams starters so you actually did get to see a good sample size of of what does Florida look like when their best players, you know, minus Blackshear inserts someone else, how do they do against other teams' best players? And the numbers are just shocking with these, with these three losses. So uh, there's also some other numbers just about how Florida's guarded and pick and roll and with uh, in isolation with Blackshear, you can go look at that. I'd love for you to read it in Gator country. Uh, it's what I think, you know, I think it's, <laughs> I, I, I wrote it. So, you know, I think it's interesting, but hopefully you will too. But uh, yeah, Neil, <laughs> what do you, what do you think about those numbers? Well, I mean, they're 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 more shocking than I thought they'd be, um, and I knew that Florida was having issues, particularly in screen and roll defense, with with Carey on the floor. But those numbers are are even worse than I thought. So I, I guess I have two immediate questions because they're not going to take Carey out. He's not going to really. I don't think his role gets reduced. So, you know, I the first immediate question I would have is. And, and you brought up one point, which was it was interesting that Florida was able to get a host of stops in the second half with Blackshear on the bench with foul trouble, like just stop after stop. Now they couldn't score, so it didn't really matter. Um, like I think Baylor went five minutes and scored four points and extended its lead. <laughs> yeah, I forget who <laughs> tweeted that out, but that's yeah, funny. Yeah, so that was, that was rough. Um, but so the first question is, how does that number improve – uh, with Omar Payne on the floor? Uh, well, the thing is that most of those lineups are, uh, like, like especially recently, like those three games, when you're looking at those numbers with Blackshear on the floor, uh, most of them are next to Omar Payne. Okay. So, uh, uh, yeah, so I, I can actually look at – well, I can actually do it live while we, while we talk. Yeah, I mean, but, uh, um, but, yeah, that's, that is the thing is that, like, you look at uh, – like, you look at Florida's – so I, I almost it might warrant its own um, its own article, uh, but one the player with the biggest actually I'll, well I'll let you guess who do you think the uh, the most where at so it definitely looks like Kerry Blackshear at, from a one player on off number uh, is the most negative. Who do you think is the most positive on the team? Either Dante Bassett or Scotty Lewis. Uh, so surprisingly, Scotty Lewis actually is ranking very poorly, which oh is, wow. Uh, is something that's quite interesting. Uh, that might be another article. Uh, by far and away, Florida's most impactful defender from an on-off number is Keontae Johnson. The okay. second most is is Andrew Nemhart. Okay. Uh, and Noah Locke is about in the middle as well as uh, as well as Omar Payne. I was so, way out. Yeah. Well, it's it's surprising stuff, but uh, but yeah. So once again, like with the thing with the Kerry Blackshear numbers are a lot of his possessions on the floor have been with that recent starters group that has Omar Payne in it, and. Uh, yeah, having Omar Payne. So I, okay, so I can, uh, okay, so I can look at it. So uh, with, uh, so as, as you saw, it was uh, 1.33 uh, with Kerry Blackshear on the floor. Uh, those, those possessions when Omar Payne was there as well uh, was 1.25. So it's about the same. So uh, yeah, so those, those possessions aren't going great when they're on even together. Uh, so Omar Payne is, is not really, you know, the, the perfect, he can't, you know, he, I guess, you know, he doesn't have some crazy ability to, to make up for those deficiencies. 
but then of course like these lineups that have uh uh some of the worst lineups like even i was looking at some of the five man lineups the worst defensive lineups have been uh especially with scotty lewis at the four but it was when like scotty lewis was at the four um uh carrie blackshear was at the five and then like it kind of didn't really matter who was in the guards it was a little bit worse with trey man out there unfortunately who the numbers don't look don't look great for but uh, yeah yeah that's kind of the scenario so and then the second question is and i think this is more of like a deep take or, you know, deep cut type question, but it's almost, I wonder if it informed the Osaya Sifu decision a little bit when it was like, do we take a polished big that can score PJ Hall or do we not take PJ Hall? Cause we're worried about defense and we just say, you know what? We'd rather just have a big physical body that, protects the rim well i mean when you look at the the kind of culture that florida has had i know it's like silly to say right now when florida's offense is far ahead of their defense but you know i would say if you ask mike white he's he's defense first and i think that uh taking uh taking an athlete like osifo whether over someone who i'm not sure would ever be like an above average defender in hall i mean i love pj hall but i mean yeah he's a great player if i had to, if I had to guess now uh would he ever be a you know, elite defender, probably not. And that's a position, uh, whether it is the the four or the five, whatever you want to say, where you probably want your defense to be ahead of your offense. I think that uh, you can get by with some guards that are, you know, offensive minded, offensive first, not as good defenders. Uh, but I think you're seeing right now with Florida, what happens when you don't have, uh, uh, when you don't have a defensive anchor at the five. And I, I should have, I should have prefaced with this. Cause I really don't want people to like, I, like, I really don't want to sound like I'm really piling on Kerry Blackshear. So I really want to point out, I really do think he tries on defense. I do not think that hustle or effort is. Oh, it's not at all. I think, and I think that so many people think that defense and hustle are like the same <laughs> thing, like they're synonymous. So, so when I, I'm definitely not calling him lazy, I'm not calling him a loot. Like I just, I think physically he's limited. And I also think that he's being put in a position to fail because I think that, uh, I think that the defense is just very difficult to play, getting people to getting him to go show on screens and then rotate back, uh, is just like a really difficult way to guard screens. And, and Kavarius Hayes was excellent. So he could do it. Uh, but it's like the toughest thing that Florida could, it's like the toughest way to guard screen and rolls. And, you know, Kerry Blackshear is just not an elite defender. I don't even think he's like, a bad defender necessarily. I just think he's a average to maybe slightly below average defender that is being put in a, in a role where he's got to play a really difficult defensive position. So uh, yeah, I just want to make well, sure that's known for anyone who let, might think that I'm trying up to on that. rag on him. Let's follow up on that because that's important, right? If, if, because this is, Florida is in now in the top 25 in, in Kim Palm offense efficiency. They're in the top 30 and has the metrics. So the two biggest, you know, metric systems that people use Florida now has what, what you consider a top 10% offense uh, and closer to a top 5% in Kim Palm. You evaluate 353 teams. So, you know, Florida is in that elite offense area. They're, they're maybe not an elite offense yet, but you know, statistically they're pretty close. And for the first time in the white era, they're almost certain to finish out of the top 25 in defensive efficiency. He's had whites had two top 10 defenses. Um, and I think, uh, you know, this one is now currently 67th 
uh, in defense efficiency and kind of free falling actually uh, is remember before the LSU game, they were all the way up. They were up 41. So it's 26 spot drop in the two losses. Um, you know, what types of schematic changes to me, you have to change your pick and roll coverage and you, I think they've got to drop. Uh, maybe they've got to consider more pure pack line type stuff, Eric. Um, Cause I don't think they're going to zone. I think we got to be realistic about that. So, you know, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I would have said zone, but I do, do think that's an unrealistic thing to say. Like they just have never, that's something that white has never done. Uh, yeah, playing the pack line where you uh, you have your your kind of fellow wing players that are one pass away from the ball that they're they're responsible for helping to take away the drive a little bit. Uh, my one hesitancy with playing pack line would be that you look at the teams that are like like a traditional pack line team. Like you look at your, like your Arizonas, your Virginias, uh, the traditional pack line team. Uh, they do they do hedge ball screens. So they, because you, you, you want to keep the ball, you know, as, as far from the hoop. Uh, so you usually see hedging uh, almost, you almost always see it from, from teams that really play pack lines. So I would be hesitant to do that. But, uh, but yeah, drop coverage, uh, a conservative way to play defense. I think that would be, uh, that'd be something that would be, uh, be, be pretty wise. Uh, but I just, yeah, once again, I mean, just to play this really aggressive defensive scheme, I, I just think is asking a lot of, of Kerry Blackshear. And we're getting to the point where, you know, the sample size is, is quite large of Florida's defense and it's came out 67th, uh, which is, you know, like just far and away the worst that it's been under, uh, under white. So, uh, yeah, I, so I know some people are saying like, you know, like it would be like, it would be tough to make kind of major, major changes, but, uh, yeah, I just think I, I, like, I, I just think that like the sample size is so large of it not working. Like you've, you've got to try something else. Yeah, I mean, I, I also think with two bigs, it's something that that can work. I mean, look, there's still ways to there's still ways to attack pack line defenses, uh, but if they're going to play Blackshear and Payne um, together, which appears pretty, you know, pretty certain that that's going to keep happening, uh, there are ways to attack it. Um, you know, you can you can slip screens, whether it's on pin downs or or ball screens that can be effective against the hedges because, because it takes advantage of the fact that the bigs are still right. They have to still have to guard the screeners, Eric. And so you still get them out of position a little bit, um, but you can help the helper with the other big, which is why it works better with two bigs. It's one of the reasons Michigan state plays it so well with unathletic bigs a lot of the time, uh, cause they're really good at that help defense, but I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, if you can guard like Iverson cuts and, and you can guard the the slips, I, um, which you know I think Florida with with Lewis and Johnson would have the ability to certainly try to do. Uh, it might work, and I don't think it's a huge schematic adjustment from what they do now. No, they've had a couple of the games too where they've had uh, had their kind of wing players sit in the gaps a little bit more. I I, got, I, I it'd be interesting actually to go look back and get some numbers on that to be honest and how that worked, but. Uh, another thing, if you want to get really, really creative, this is something you see in the NBA kind of I, the first time I saw it was last year is you do it, what's called a scramble switch, uh, which would be like, like a lot of times when we think of, of switching, you think of like, you know, someone goes, sets a screen on Andrew Nemhart and, uh, you know, and Nemhart and Blackshear switch on the ball. Uh, but what a scramble switch would be is like 
So say Andrew Nemhart is guarding the other team's point guard and Kerry Blackshear's man goes to set a ball screen, Keontae Johnson would just like run to go guard the screen. Like wherever he is on the floor, he would just run. So that's like a scramble switch where you switch like an opposite side of the floor away from the screen. You see uh, like Boston does this the most, I would say, the Celtics. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a very creative way of like almost confusing the other team because they're, they're not really ex- expecting that. Uh, but it's just another way of like, playing in man defense but saying like no we're just like not going to make our 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 five man guard and screen and roll so uh i mean that's that would be on the the high side of creativity and and it's somewhat difficult uh but once again i mean i'm i I, i've been watching these possessions over and over and over again of of florida's defense these last couple days and uh i'm just like to to try to keep doing it and and the other thing too is in the post game. I thought one thing that I thought was really interesting was was Keontae Johnson, who was you know very upset with the loss, like understandably so. He was talking, yeah. you know, someone asked him about why the defense was struggling, and he was just like, "Man, like, um, you know, like we we guard, you know, we'd make one switch, uh, but we wouldn't be able to rotate and keep rotating to get to get to an open shooter." Uh, also, Coach White on the sidelines, more animated than I've ever seen him. I think was in this game when they blew some rotations. Uh, but once again, like Baylor was easily putting Florida in rotation defensively within like the first six seconds of the clock, because they would just like, if you're going to show on screens like Florida does, and you have a guard that can make the first pass really well, and you have a team that can space it out, uh, you're now guarding three on four. And that's what just like watching Florida try to play Baylor. They were just in, they were in rotation all the time playing three against four because, uh, because yeah, you'd, you'd, you know, kind of blitz the screen, show on the screen like Blackshear was doing. The ball would be rotated, uh, and now suddenly, suddenly everyone's got to move. And and Florida was just in rotation, and they would just really struggle to get out of it. I mean, so like I was really impressed when Florida played Auburn. I thought they looked really comfortable in rotation and could get to their guys. Uh, Baylor, you know, Missouri, even uh, LSU. These losses recently, like they've just been really ready for uh, uh, to attack Florida. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was really interesting for Keontae Johnson to just talk very frustratingly about how Florida wasn't able to, to rotate well enough, uh, which you could obviously like to an extent, that's definitely on the players. Like you've, you know, got to be better. But once again, when you're asking players to, you're essentially saying every time that every time that the other team ball screens, um, you're going in rotation and, and essentially usually, usually three players are going to kind of change who they're guarding to, or they're going to at least have to go tag those guys before getting back. And again, it's just, it's just a difficult way to guard screen and roll. That just, if I, you know, I'm probably throwing out some things that got confusing inside, and I probably didn't articulate <laughs> them well, and people are people well, are losing a, me. But you again, did a pretty good just, job. But. but again, it's just I, I would just say like it is a tough, tough way to guard screen and roll. And when you see it, like you know, Florida started the game and just got worn down. Uh, I, I just think like once again, that's that's just very difficult to ask your guys to play three against four and then recover every time that your opponent's going to screen and roll. Yeah, and look, I mean, I think this is an area where the staff needs to be criticized. I mean, it's because uh, you guys should read Eric's article, but I think one really salient point that Eric makes in the article, among many, is that when your offense is in the top 25 in the country, that's where you win national championships. Nine of the last 10 national champions have been in the top 25 in offensive efficiency. Um, But you still have to be pretty good defensively eight of the last 10 have been in the top 40 in defensive efficiency. Florida has to get up in that range if they were going to compete to win championships this season. And at some point a staff has to realize that it's not working. Um, and hopefully this week did that because by the way, we're going to get to this after listener questions, but 
another really good offensive basketball team uh, is coming Tuesday night to Gainesville. Uh, a little bit different type of basketball team, but a very off, a very efficient offense. And those are the teams that have the teams that have killed Florida this year are teams that can defend them well enough to slow them down offensively, and then with the exception of FSU, that can punish them offensively. Uh, you know, it's kind of been the combination of both, with the exception of Florida State, that that has given uh, Florida big time fits and and. You know, yeah, I mean, I would expect there to be some level of, of schematic adjustment. Now, in the second half of this game, they kept getting stops in the half court but couldn't score, and then they kind of make the score somewhat more respectable than it really was with a press. So I wanted to ask you, Eric, you know, because one common thread was, well, maybe Florida should have pressed earlier, and my thought on it was they didn't because they were getting stops. What was your kind of read on that? Okay, so I, I, I do have a, a take here. Um, this is going to be some nerd ball coming out. So uh, All right. I hope I – if you don't <laughs> like analytics, you probably don't really listen to the article anyways, or maybe you just listen for Neil and you hate me and hate my writing. But Unlikely. I apologize. But, but there was a point where Florida is down 14, and there's like five minutes left, and Florida is still playing straight-up defense. So I just want to lay this out from like an analytics standpoint, what it would have taken for Florida to win at that point. So with five, so five minutes left, Florida's down 14. So that's 300 seconds. These teams are, you know, both, both of them don't really play fast. Uh, both don't really take their time in the half court. So they're probably going like 18 to 20 seconds per possession. So that means that there's like 16 possessions left in the basketball game total. So that means that, you know, the way that that's going, eight of them belong to Florida. Let's not even factor in that. Baylor's been killing them on offensive rebounds. That might change that number. But let's say no one gets an offensive rebound. That's that's around eight possessions for Florida, the way that that game was trending. So Florida is down 14 points. So for them to just make up 14 points in eight possessions, they've got to be scoring 1.6 point points per possession, or oh. more than that. They need to be scoring 1. 1. 1.8 points per possession to make just to score 14 points in five minutes. Uh and that's that's and that's also saying you stop Baylor every single one of those possessions. So when Florida was playing it straight up with five minutes left, I knew that they couldn't win. Like that, that's just like that. If like that is the way that you know analytically you have to look at the situation. You look at hey, there's five minutes left. Uh, the way this game is trending, that's probably sixteen to seventeen total possessions. So that's eight or nine of those belong to us. We're down fourteen. Okay, we're going to need to score. 1.6 points per so that's essentially scoring almost every time down the floor you know you make a three here and there you can do it uh but that's also that's also suggesting that florida is not going to score whatsoever or that, that baylor's not going to score whatsoever so when florida didn't press there I, I that math to me just doesn't add up and and again this is i i don't know how much of a numbers staff this is truthfully and i don't know if they think that way um but i think this is a scenario where you've got to think that way because i just if you don't look at the math in these situations, uh, I, I just I think it would be very helpful in a scenario exactly like this to to look at the number of possessions left and and uh, figure it out that way. Look at the points per possession you need to score and say like, hey, do you think we're going to score one point seven or one point eight points per possession the rest of the way while allowing Baylor zero points? Uh, <laughs> unlikely. Uh, one of the things I also would have loved for them to do from an analytical standpoint is once again five minutes left. Uh, you know, you're down 14. 
Baylor's in the single bonus and Mark Vital, who is uh 45% free throw shooters on the floor. Um, I would absolutely hack him and make him shoot, go, make yeah. him go shoot one and one yeah. three times. Because once again, if you're planning on playing straight up defense, you need to add possessions to the basketball game. You can't let Baylor go and take 20 possessions off the sh- or 20 seconds off the shot clock uh, for the math that I just laid out. So you, so even if, like even if Baylor, even if he goes one for two, I know it's like you know that'd be one point per possession. Uh, you just like when you're down by double digits and it's getting tight, you need to add possessions to the basketball game, and the only way you can do that is, you know, you can get steals, you can get offensive rebounds. I get, but uh, but I think that fouling Mark Vital in a one and one situation would have been brilliant there. They could have done it maybe multiple times if if Scott Drew didn't take him out. Um, so yeah, that was a lot of nerd ball right there. But uh, those those. That that's the way I saw the end of the basketball game. All right. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of wondered, uh, like initially I understood what, what they were doing, but yeah, I mean, as the game kind of progressed along and it, it was easy, I guess, to look in hindsight and say, Oh, well, the press actually rattled Baylor a little bit, which it's hard to rattle their guards. Uh, and, you know, and we saw against LSU and Alabama that Florida has kind of an effective press. Uh, so you, you've got to want, like, I just think between the press, between the fact that early in the year they had some success with the 13 zone. And then I think got spooked by, by teams shooting high three point percentages. Uh, but until the Baylor game, Florida's three point defense had really been terrific in the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, I just, I do, I think they need to make some defensive schematic changes and, and I, you know, I think they, they weren't, a healthy dose of criticism if they don't, because we should be at a point right now where we're praising the changes that they made offensively because the offense is infinitely better. And then saying, Hey, now we've got a ball club and and Florida's just not quite there yet. Um, You know, and I don't know if they'll get there. Uh, So listener questions, Eric, or anything else on Baylor? Uh, No, I think that's about it. I think I got my, uh, my analytics rants out for the, for the day. So we, I'd love some listener questions. All right. So uh, Gator boss, nine Oh four long time listener. Can they reach 20 wins again? Um, I think so. I mean, I shoot, I think so to get there in the regular season. Now they'd have to go 12 and six in the sec, uh, which, you know, I think is certainly possible. I would be eight and four down the stretch. So basically they'd have to play at the same pace that they're on to get 20 in the regular season. Uh, and then if they don't do that, then they're going to be really on the bubble uh, no matter what. And, you know, they'll have to win a game in Nashville or in the NIT or the NCAA tournament to do it. Uh, last year, remember, they had to win the Nevada game to get the 20, but I, I do think they can do it. Uh, next question was uh, William Norris. I'll throw this one to you. Um, and it's kind of tongue-in-cheek. He said, do you think if fans continue to tweet at Scott Strickland, he will fire Coach White? And then he asked – the serious question, um, are you or Eric able to quantify how much better the SEC is now than it was towards the end of the Donovan era? I'm interested to see how many teams made the tourney, Kimpom 100, every year for the 4 graduated compared to the Mike White era. It's probably something we have to do a little research on, but I know Eric uh, knows, that, knows a thing or two about how strong the league is, and this year not quite as strong. Um, well, uh... Uh, the easiest way to do like if you want to look at like a really just like simple way of doing it is i would say like let's look at ken palm who has uh who does rank conferences based on just like you know who their metric 
all the teams, the, the average uh, adjusted efficiencies, uh, and they rank conferences. So right now, the SEC is the fifth strongest conference. Uh, last year, it was 19th. Or sorry, I went to 2019. Sorry. So <laughs> it was fourth. So yeah, so this was so this year it's fifth. The year prior is fourth. The year prior to that it was fourth. Uh, the year prior to that, we're now at 2017 is is fifth. Uh, so if we look to uh, the Billy Donovan era, uh, the SEC was fifth. The year prior to that, it was sixth. 2013, it was seventh. So uh, 2012, it was fourth. But 2011, it was seventh. So I would say uh you just look at the uh look you know you look at the last five years of the, the billy donovan era and i see some six seven seven four seven uh you look at these last four years uh including this one uh it's five four four five four six so uh i would say for that reason the sec is stronger just based off what uh what ken pom says interesting yeah i mean uh you know um and i thought it was too i although i i really thought that Maybe it was in the RPI that the league was third, at least one of the years of the of the white era. Well, but I, I but, but no, 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 I'm not gonna. I'm not. <laughs> hold on, let me at least get my disclaimer out, Eric. True, true, that, true. You know, because we have never been uh, advocates of the ratings percentage index, but I do think <laughs> I do think at one point it was the top three RPI league. I trust Kin Palm a little bit more. <laughs> I I'll, all I wanted to say is that uh, in Ken Palm the big 12 wins it almost every year. And it's just skewed because there's not really like a bottom of the big 12, like the big 12 is a great league. Don't get me wrong. But like, I I think if you cut out four programs from a bunch of the other power fives, they'd look a lot better in these metrics too. So like, I wouldn't be surprised if there was other metrics that would like, like, like you can almost say with like, like the big 12 every year is like almost always the, the number one league. So it's definitely skewed that way. And I don't think that, uh, yeah, so like this year it's second, last year it was first, 2018 it was first, 2017 it was first, 2016 it was first, 2015 it was first, 2014 it was first, I'm not going to keep going. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, so I, so which like, I just like do not believe that the, that the Big 12 was the best league in all these years. So uh, yeah, so if there's a metric that shows that Florida, or sorry, that shows that the SEC was better than the Big 12, I would believe it in, in at least one of those years. Fair enough. Uh, Drew Helmich, what do you think is Florida's optimal lineup right now? Oh, I mean, coming off, uh, uh, coming off this new lineup data that I have, this new, uh, yeah. this new service I'm using, uh, the answer is so, so, so far and away. Even with Blackshear bringing down uh, the defensive numbers when he's on the floor, uh, it's the starting group that, that Florida has had recently okay. uh, with, uh, with Andrew Nemhart, with Noah Locke, with Keontae Johnson. Uh, with Omar Payne, with Kerry Blackshear. Uh, that lineup is just so much better than any other lineup Florida has. So even uh, even when you, like, uh, so the defense will improve if you take out Blackshear and you add someone like like Scotty Lewis, even though, like, once again, Scotty Lewis's numbers, which, like, again, this this can be taken with, like, you know, a grain of salt. It's not just, like, absolute fact, that, but but his he doesn't have, like, a massive defensive, um, defensive impact. So, uh, yeah, so he helps it out a little bit, but uh, here's just a number that's just crazy. So that lineup, the, the starting lineup that Florida's used, they're at 1.54 points per possession offensively this year. So uh, I didn't want to really have good. to share that number because I'm definitely going to write about it later this, uh, this week, just about how Florida's bench has not been able to keep that up. Nope. Uh, but that, that group of five players ha- has really, really been scoring the basketball well. Uh, so that, that 
I like, and I would still say, uh, so yeah. And just like by my eye test as well, I think that that's Florida's best lineup. So, uh, which is certainly not a hot take because it's, you know, it's what Florida has been starting. Uh, but it's, it's the best lineup in my mind. And I, I actually, uh, yeah, I don't think it's close to be honest. Go Gators at him. Alfred, Alfred, sorry. Uh, says it seems we've had fewer explosive blob plays than last year. Is that because we're not trying them or teams are taking them away? Uh, you know, I, again, I'd have to look at data. I feel like not really. Like the one thing that they're doing this year that I didn't think they did as much last year is they run a set where they they set sort of an underneath screen, and in, in past seasons they would often kick it out to a shooter over the top of that underneath screen, Eric. But this year they'll throw it to like Keontae at the elbow a lot. That's like the real one wrinkle I've seen that I don't remember them doing as much in the past. Yeah, it's good. Uh, it's a good point. Like I almost thought in the beginning of the season that maybe Florida was uh, like, like we just weren't seeing the plays that Florida was running last year. And, and I even went back because, uh, you know, some people remember in the off season, I wrote about Florida's uh, baseline out of bounds plays. And I, I looked at every single play and, had a video of them. So I kind of knew at least, at least what was in the playbook last year. And there's a bunch of the plays that we just hadn't seen. So I, I almost thought that maybe Florida was keeping it for the, the conference season. Cause uh, you don't really want to give away some of those things. Uh, so, so maybe they just like said, Hey, let's not use them in the, the, the non-conference. So our conference opponents don't have film of them. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I think that they've just been a little bit more conservative with their with their baseline out of bounds. Like, I, I think that they've just been like, because I mean, like, there's some of like the super exciting plays they they had it for uh, the the Omar Payne dunk. Uh, they also had, you know, they had, they have a couple of those. You know, Keontae Johnson gets a big dunk off a baseline out of bounds play. Uh, those are really fun, but you know, they did turn the ball over doing that a little bit. Um, something that I also found in the data that I thought was really interesting was that like. Noah Locke was really poor shooting these plays that were designed for him. So like maybe the, the staff saw something like yeah. that. Uh, Keontae Johnson was another guy that with the corner threes that he was getting when he wasn't shooting them great. So maybe the staff was privy to that. Uh, so I do think that the staff has just been a little bit more conservative to just say like, Hey, let's, uh, let's just get the basketball in and, and run something from there. Uh, and I mean, it was nice. Cause I mean, last year the offense struggled so much. It was like, refreshing when they had a baseline out of bounds play so they could run something awesome and, and hopefully get a bucket uh this year now that they're scoring a little bit better or well significantly better uh in the half court i think it's a little bit more like hey let's say yeah you can kind of get the ball and safely make sure you don't turn it over and uh let them run some of their stuff that's been effective yeah and then canyon buried shot 48 percent off those things um there's yeah. a number there's a number for you and jalen hudson shot 42 which for jalen hudson is you know so, so I think that that I think Eric's right. Like, if Locke's not making those shots, then sometimes you get a little trigger or a little gun shy um, at going at him. CLT Gator has a fun one in honor of the K State Kansas brawl. Which SEC basketball coaches would you want on your side in a brawl? You want to go first? Pick well, three. I mean, if, well, I mean, if I go first, like, I get I get Royal, the obvious number one answer of Frank Martin. Okay, so you you take Frank Martin with the first pick. Oh yeah, let's yeah we'll do. Let's that. do a draft, draft draft like Royal Rumble, just draft style. All right, so you're taking Frank Martin. Uh, uh, you know what? It's a hard. It's so hard. You know what? I'm going Bruce Pearl just because I feel like he'd fight. Like he'd have like a prison shake. Oh right? yeah, I mean, <laughs> like there's no way he would fight fair. 
no, he he's I, that was that was definitely up there. So um, I think uh, I think beyond uh, uh, beyond just having the pure toughness and and terrifyingness that's Frank Martin, I I do want just a little bit of straight up like size, length, athleticism. So I'm going Jerry Stackhouse. I think just a little <laughs> bit like a box, like a boxer. He just get like he would just like like you said, Bruce Pearl's fighting dirty. But I mean, like I think that Jerry Stackhouse, just his reach and his length. I mean, he'd have punches off before before Bruce Pearl could reach him. So I I, I don't think that Stackhouse is a particularly uh, you know personality wise. He's not. He certainly doesn't have. Uh, he, he's not as like terrifying as some of these other coaches. <laughs> uh, but I think he's got the reach. I think he's got the strength. So so that would be my next guy. All right, I gotta match that with Quanzo. Mm. I gotta I gotta I gotta get some toughness. You know. God. So, so that's, that's going to be my pick. I just, I'll just stick him on uh body on body stack house versus Quanzo. And with my final pick, uh, you know, I haven't been in any fights. Like, let's be honest here. I'm just a, just a humble <laughs> Canadian, but, it, but you know, you know, when, uh, when a brawl breaks out, there's gotta be the guy who takes his shirt off first. And for that reason, it's Eric Musselman. He's going to be the guy that like, if there's, if there is any just like hint of, like there might be going, there might be something going down. His shirt's coming off. So for me, it's Musselman. <laughs> I think that's a that's that's an excellent pick. But in honor of John Rothstein, you knew my third pick was going to be Will Wade, American Gangster. <laughs> we definitely have so, a few different strat- We definitely have a few different <laughs> strategies here in the in the brawl. But but I mean, uh, yeah, I, I I think you got to look at uh, uh, you know Cal Perry. I, I don't I don't think you really want him on your side. I think you know Nate, Nate Oates. Cal Perry uh, is the promoter of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, true. He'd be like, you know what? Uh, this game should be played. This Royal Rumble should happen in August. Uh, he'd, he'd have that going on. But, but I think you <laughs> in know, the Bahamas. Uh, uh, yeah, and I, I think that the temperaments of Nate Oates, Mike White, uh, not not guy. Yeah, you know, I, I don't want to see them out there brawling. Uh, I, I think they, <laughs> I, those would be the those would be the guys like actually working out the problem with their words. Rick Barnes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, don't, I, thought, I don't he'd know be placing the, the he'd be placing the he'd be handing cash to Cal Perry. To, <laughs> he would he would be handing money to to Cal. That was a great question, CLT. Thanks for that one. <laughs> uh, Justin Fortner also with Gak leaving, it opens a scholarship up. Assuming Nimhard leaves, do we save one spot for Scotty Lewis, hoping he returns, or fill it in the spring with a grad transfer or high school player or another sit one? Um. I mean, if Scotty Lewis wants to come back, they're not going to, like, yank his scholarship. Um, but I've been thinking about this a lot, like what would make that roster better next year. And for me, it's a grad transfer guard that, you know, maybe a guy from a mid-major conference that's kind of a proven scorer. And I know that Eric likes Appleby a lot, but, like, it never hurts to have multiple. Or what about, like, a guard that's, like, a good three-point shooter that's also a good defender. Like maybe that's he's limited, but like he can defend. You know, it, maybe maybe he's just a really, or maybe he's big and athletic and from a mid-major conference, uh, but not a great scorer. Like I, I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm less high on that option now that I'm kind of saying it out loud. But I feel like a grad transfer guard is probably what I would do with the open scholar. Yeah, I mean. <sighs> There was a there was a dark timeline I was thinking about the other day, and uh, you know as as I've kind of seen the uh, like okay so you know caveat 
this is like zero. Per- this is nothing but from my own mind. This is not based on anything. Um, you know, you see Keith Stone and how he used the graduate transfer option, not because I think that he was dissatisfied with Florida. I just think when you've got the opportunity to grad transfer and you've got a ton of options, sometimes the school you came from isn't the best option. Um, I like a Dante Bassett and he's a player I love. Don't, don't get me wrong. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to push him out the door. I'd love him to stay. I would love to see what he could do in a role next year. But you know, I, he's a guy that once again, I look, he'll, he'll have the ability to grad transfer. And I, and I just wonder if maybe he looks at his options in a similar way to, uh, to Keith Stone and says like, uh, Hey, like maybe I should just, you know, weigh the options. Maybe I want to go back home or maybe I want to go somewhere where I am an unquestioned starter or something like that. And I, so again, that is based off nothing, just something I thought about. And I, I, and I was looking to see like, wow, like Florida's front court actually could get quite thin in a hurry. Uh, if, if something like that were to happen, I mean, it, it'll be interesting too. Like I, I, I do wonder with the CFO if like, there's a chance that he was even going to redshirt his first year at Florida. Like I have no idea if that was discussed or anything like that. Uh, but I mean, you, you look at the roster next year and like Deruji, I think is an awesome option at the four. Uh, you, we know Keontae Johnson could play at the four. Uh, you got Omar, Omar Payne presumably is back. Uh, and then you, you, you know, you think that Dante Bassett's there as well. But I mean, at the same time, like Florida's loved playing big this year. There's not a great option. To, you know, the options won't be quite the same to do that next year uh, with the way the roster is looking. And, and I do wonder like, Hey, maybe Bassett's going to weigh his options. And I, uh, yeah. So anyways, I, to, to answer the main question, I absolutely think Florida should have an, uh, be looking at the grad transfer market. I, I love grad transfers. And I think you look across college basketball and, grad transfers are awesome uh but i mean there's a lot of different positions that that it could work for florida to go after i i I like what you're saying about a guard getting some insurance in the front court wouldn't hurt either and honestly you know wings are awesome and uh florida has never or i shouldn't say never recently has not had a lot of options at the wing so if you have the opportunity to get a wing like maybe you should take him so uh yeah i just think that the versatility of of having a spot for a grad transfer is is always great yeah, uh, it's a good answer. Um, and one other question Justin Fortner had was about D Beckwith, the football recruit. And, and no, I don't think he would take a scholarship, Justin. Uh, I would imagine that so he wouldn't be required to. He'd be on a football scholarship. So that'd just be one of those deals where um, their bench kind of gets longer because I imagine that a guy like D Beckwith would join the program obviously after the football season ends and, and I, you know, he probably wouldn't play very much as a true freshman, to be honest, he joined the team late, but uh, at six four two twenty, I mean, you know, that's, that's a really big guard. So, uh, you know, you know, if you listen to this podcast regularly, you know that we're big fans of, of big guards. So uh, that's good. Um, you know, that kind of covers that question. So they're in Tampa. Uh, We'll round out our listener questions. No, we have two more. Sorry. So we'll do Sarah first. Uh, and this is a good one for the, the highly technical conversation we had earlier. Uh, you guys talk about pack line defense a lot. What exactly is the pack line? Um, okay. So I'm going to try this, Eric. Sure. And you can tell me all the reasons I'm wrong. Um, so it's quite literally a line. <laughs> conceptually uh, what it tries to do is encourage teams to, to drive uh, encourage teams to, to straight line drive and to places where there is help um, and typically you can double the corners um, 
the teams that do it best, I think, are Virginia and Michigan State. Xavier does it pretty well, too, to be fair. Um, but what they'll do is they front the posts with weak side help. So what they want to do is take away post touches. Uh, the ultimate goal is to force contested twos, mostly, or just to see if your opponent is going to make threes. Um, the way that you have your line set up, it's pretty easy to rebound out of, even if you're not super athletic. Um, so a lot of times the benefits of it are you protect, you try to prevent shots at the rim and you limit teams to one shot by congesting the paint and, uh, keeping the game kind of within that 16 foot arc. I don't know if that explanation of it helps any, but I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I would just say, uh, <laughs> when you look at, uh, kind of a more like you call it like a more standard or like a denied man defense uh when a player is guarding the ball on the wing uh the player that's responsible to be the help defender would come from the opposite side of the floor and he would go sit in the paint and if the guy right. guarding the ball gets beat um the the player that came from the weak side the opposite side of the floor he would be responsible to help uh in pack line defense uh it's the players that are like one pass away or like most closely adjacent uh, to the ball, uh, they're responsible for, for helping out on the drive. Uh, they're responsible for, for digging down using their hands. Uh, I would definitely watch, if you can watch Virginia play, even this year where they're not very good, they still put on a clinic of how to play pack line defense. Uh, and if you want to see like the exact opposite of that style of defense, uh, look at Texas Tech. I think they play uh, you know the extreme example of the other way. Um, or Michigan last year against Florida. Just, uh, yeah, they, they had the help coming from the opposite side and uh, did it super well. So uh, and I would just say, like, too, if you uh, just generally speaking, pack line is is protect the paint, protect the rim, and you maybe you give up some some you know jump shots, but uh, its number one goal is to protect the hoop. Yeah, that's a great question, though. Um, Gatorbit08 rounds out our listener question. Said I had a question on whether you guys are in favor of the SEC going to a twenty-game conference schedule. Uh. I'm not really. I, I kind of think 18 is fine. Uh, I like the SEC Big 12 Challenge, which I think would almost certainly go away if they went to 20 games. I think that that's a great event. Um, obviously hasn't treated the Gators as well the last two seasons as it used to. But, um, you know, I think it's it's terrific. Uh, and I like I like the, uh, I, you know, they don't even have a buy now. Uh, they used to get a buy in conference play before they went to 18. I don't think there's any reason to expand it, Eric. I mean, I'll tell you this. I think when you look at the, the numbers and the way that the net ranking treated uh, treated games last year, I can absolutely see why there is uh, there are leagues that are going to the 20-game schedule, and I can absolutely see why, why some teams would say, like, yeah, let's do this. Um, the college basketball fan in me says, like, no, I really don't want it. <laughs> I just, like, love to see more of these non-conference games. Uh, but I've got to say, when you look at the numbers and, and you look at the way that uh, uh, that the you know the computers e- evaluate these conference games, and uh, you know, you, like if you know, presumably get one more road opportunity against obviously a power five team, someone in your league, uh, there is definite benefits to the way that uh, uh, the net and and you know any of the other kind of predictive metrics are going to look at it. So so it's it, it is tough for me because as a fan, I want to say absolutely no, I don't want them to go to twenty games. I can also totally understand why leagues would want to. And if all the other leagues are going to 20 league games, uh, it would be tough for the SEC not to because they don't want to be kind of left behind when it comes to the way that these numbers are going to look at uh, uh, look at all these games. So, uh, you know, my, my answer will be 
will be no, but uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it happened. There you go. Um, so let's see, that's listener questions. I did want to touch on White's press conference because I know you watched it and you know, we, we saw about as angry as he gets, I think, from you know, carried over from the post game, really, Eric. Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, like there was a moment early in the game when things were still going well for Florida, like, you know, relatively well for Florida. They got a couple buckets, had some stops, but uh, they really poorly played a one defensive possession. White was already animated. They missed a rotation. He was super mad. Uh, and then the shot fell and he was, you know, infuriated. And it was like, I honestly think it was maybe the most animated angry I've ever seen him. I, I probably wasn't the most angry he's ever been, but uh, definitely the most animated I've ever seen him on the sideline. Uh and then, yeah, you go to the post game, and I've got to say that, yeah, it looks uh, – it was about as angry as, as he's ever ever been. And, uh, yeah, so I, I would have to agree with you there. Um, you know, the one thing I'll say about the anger and the, the accountability riffs is that that works both ways. That, that I get that you want the players to invest and understand that the season isn't over and understand that, like – there's still a pretty high ceiling for the team because they're this good offensively. Um, you know, where I think, you know, this certainly is a team that can play on the second weekend. And I know people probably think I'm nuts saying that, but you know, I do think the talent is there. I don't know if it's a final four talented roster. I think we all overestimated the roster a little bit, but I think a second weekend roster is absolutely realistic. And the sweet 16 is a really good season uh, as is the elite eight. Um, you know, as is the second round at most programs, but uh, you know, the coach's job is to put players in a position to succeed. And I'm not sure that they're doing that defensively, which we've discussed on the show. Yeah. I mean, I, I see the way that they, they defend and, you know, it's, it's just, it, it, again, you look like Florida's kind of defended the same way under white and it's with Kavarius Hayes, they've been able to do really well. And it was something that before the season, you know, I saw that like, Florida was undersized and not athletic and not long. And they had guys like some guys that I didn't think were great defenders and, and white still found a way to get them top 20. And I thought like, Hey, like, you know what? Like I, I honestly thought after last season and I said this on the podcast, so like people could definitely laugh at me cause I was wrong. Cause I definitely said something along the lines of white is going to get any group of guys to be a top 25 defensive team. That was probably like an exact quote of what I said, but if not yeah. it was something along those lines. And I mean, Really, like there's been changing pieces other than Kavarius Hayes, and I think he just anchored everything in a way that is was unimaginable. And but now we're now we're seeing it, and uh, I, I, yeah, I just think that uh, I think that uh, uh, yeah, it's just not doesn't appear to be the best way for for this group to defend. And uh, for that reason, I've I, I, I certainly can understand saying like, yeah, I don't think these guys are in the the best position to win. Just like after the Florida State loss, you know, I said I didn't think that they were being put in a position to win with the offense that was being ran. Uh, so I mean, they made adjustments there with the offense, and uh, it worked really well. So we'll see what they do defensively. But I, I've got to say, like again, seeing I, seeing Keontae Johnson talking about how they just weren't able to to get rotations and uh, defensively. Uh, you, I, I think that there, when you're just put in a defense where you're going to be in rotation pretty much every defensive possession, uh, that's that's a tough ask. And uh, yeah, it's tough. And I mean, I also look, you know, another thing was a lot of people, you know, bringing up how badly Florida was rebounded. Uh, and I know some people thought that was 
some people took that as an actually i'd be interested i actually want to know what you think actually after this uh do you think that do, do you think that the uh the rebounding was uh was like what it what is what was your thought what do you think the problem was with, with rebounding well i mean a big problem i thought in the baylor game was that when keontae or keontae johnson when Kerry blackshear comes out to show on the screens he is physically limited, and so he's almost in a bad position to begin with, and he has to rally back to the basketball, uh, which just makes it hard to rebound in that spot. And he is unequivocally Florida's best rebounder. So if you're putting him away from the rim and he doesn't have near the athleticism that Spidey had, so it's just really tough. That's kind of my very simplistic explanation of it, Eric. Yeah. I mean, so that's, that's something that I would say as well. Like, and I think that when Florida is in rotation and guys have to rotate over to, to help shots, uh, they're scrambled and it's tough for them to find bodies. But I mean, that was the rebounding was something else that, that white called out. And uh, you know, in regards to the defense, he said that Florida was soft, which I think is like pretty strong wording. I mean, it could have like, I, I don't think, I think that white uses his words really, carefully and, and intelligently I think he's really smart in the way he talks to media so I don't think that that was like a lapse I think he he knew what he was doing uh and uh yeah I think that's just very strong that's that's a strong word to use uh when you're talking about you know athletes and, and a sport uh I think there's a lot of players that would rather be called like trash than than to be called soft so uh I did think that was pretty interesting did you have any any reaction to that well one? I like that um, it's well, certainly a ploy that's, that's worked at Florida in the past. Now it worked for Billy Donovan, but it worked for Billy Donovan before he had won a national championship. It worked in 2005. He called that team. Actually, what he said was everyone, but the O fours is soft. He said, everybody, but our freshmen are soft. And it, you know, it's kind of clairvoyant, right? Like Billy knew within like 15 games that, that his seniors were kind of soft and that Horford and Noah and those guys weren't, but that team ends up winning the sec tournament and basically, you know, played a elite eight caliber game in the second round against Villanova and lost to a great Villanova team, Jay Wright's first great team. And, and uh, you know, the other time he did it was when they had made two NITs in a row, which are seem to be just forgotten years when the hive gets together, you know, you think Florida went like 29 and four every season. And Florida had made two NITs in a row after the after the championships, and that team he actually locked out of the the basketball facility and called them soft to the media. So, uh, and and they rallied and made the NCAA tournament and and uh, played an epic game against Jimber Fredette and BYU and lost in two overtimes. But um, you know, I, I just think there's some value in it. And it seems to me, this is a good segue here to the Tuesday night discussion that like, that's what he probably said ahead of Tuesday night against a team that I think is kind of the opposite of soft. I think like when you think of like basketball teams that are just tough and nasty, like I really think of Mississippi state. <laughs> yeah. Just like the, the one last thing on the soft thing, like, like, like I said, I think it was, I think white uses his words really carefully. And I think it was really interesting to see these last <laughs> two years where he was so, you know, like he didn't criticize his guys and he, 
uh, it's because he knew the personality. So I got to trust that he, he knows the personality. So uh, I, I, I got to think he knows what he's doing. And uh, yeah, we'll see how they respond. But, but like you said, I mean, uh, Mississippi State is just like uh, really overwhelming uh, physically. I think I forget who I was listening to. I wish I could give credit. But uh, someone on the ESPN broadcast earlier in the season at one of those uh, one of those early non-conference tournaments, he, he pointed out he's like, uh, he was at the airport when all the teams were arriving and he saw Mississippi State and uh, he was like, well, that team's coming first. Like, I wonder who's playing for second. And he's just said it like I just it really cracked me up because he, <laughs> he was like he was just overwhelmed. And I mean, but you see you see Reggie Perry and you see Abdullah Du and uh, uh, you see the way that some of their wings and, and Robert Nick Witter, Weatherspoon like, uh, even. <laughs> yeah, Nick Weatherspoon. Like I like they are they're definitely an airport team that looks uh, they look yeah. intimidating, but but they I mean they don't really ju- they don't just look intimidating like they 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 play hard they play intimidating too. Yeah, so they do. Um, I love that line, the airport team. Like the team that looks just like they're gonna kill you when they get off the bus. Yeah, uh, that's Miss State. Uh, they're led by Reggie Perry. We'll get to him. They're led by Nick Weatherspoon, a 27th year senior. We'll get to him. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you don't know Nick Weatherspoon's game right now, you obviously haven't been watching the SEC since 1992. But uh, they're also, like, bizarro because, like, when you think of a Ben Howland team, you think of, like, we're going to hedge the hell out of ball screens and we're really nasty on defense and we'll just figure out a way to get enough points. And this Mississippi State team is is, like, not very good defensively, even though they're – they're really tough and physical, Like that's kind of like their strategy. And then like, if you make them defend for 30 seconds, they break down, but they can score. Yeah. They're, they're really fascinating because uh, like offensively, when you look at their, their numbers, they're really, really good in transition and they take like 17% of their shots in transition. So like, that's, that's a lot. Uh, But then like very strangely, they're 290th in offensive possession length. So if they're not going in transition, like they're playing incredibly slowly. So, so I mean, looking at the numbers, like I would say it's their their work in transition is what's what's really tough to guard because uh, Weatherspoon is just you know once again great athlete, great speed, can handle the ball, and then you've got like Reggie Perry who's as fast as the guards on the floor, except he's six ten and two fifty. Uh, so he you know he's rim running and uh, just watching uh, watching some of these games uh, earlier in the season, like they just like overwhelmed some teams with their uh with like they, they're just a bunch of like bowling balls in transition like uh just bouncing off of guys getting to the rim uh and yeah that's got to be something that's that i kind of found the most impressive uh when it comes to their offense yeah that's a great point point. and the other thing that happens with them is that when they can get out and transition they'll play real fast but the games that they've really had problems are when teams other than alabama uh, who was just like, all right, we will run. Um, everybody else that's given them problems really has been kind of like a team that's been willing to make them defend for 30 seconds, which is how they're 290th in offensive possession like and 317th in tempo because as much time as they're taking in the half court, opponents have been content to try to make them defend for 30 seconds. And most of the time it's worked. Now, when Missouri tried to do it, they beat them by 27. And, uh, you know, that's kind of one, the one exception to it, but New Mexico state, I watched them play New Mexico state, Eric. And it was like this tedious game from like 1944 
But I really thought New Mexico State's plan was really good. And I kind of like know it'll drive people crazy, but I feel like that's like maybe a path for Florida to win. It's like, let's see if we can go out and win like 61-55 tomorrow. We're recording yeah, I Monday think, night. I, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think that might have to. And uh, uh, I, the other thing too is that like, so Mississippi State, number two in the country in offensive rebound percentage. Uh, so they rebound 40% of their misses, which is crazy. Uh, just nuts. And for that reason too, I think you do want to just like limit the amount of shots that, that they get because the more shots they get up, the more they're going to turn them into more shots, if that makes sense. So yeah. I, I do think a lower possession game is, is, is probably going to be going to be wise for Florida. And, and once again, I look at, I look at the numbers for, for Mississippi state and uh, you know, really good transition team, like good, but, but not great in, in the half court. So uh, whereas Florida, yeah, they've been, they've been really good in the half court. So uh, a half court game where it's slowed down a bit. There's there's a low number of possessions, so like Mississippi State can't can't just like send Reggie Perry and Abdullah Dew to go rebound the ball forty percent of the time when they miss. Uh, yeah, I, I think it would be wise. So yeah, this will be a. Uh, I, I know after Florida's offense has you know really been looking good, a lot of people are gonna you know want Florida to just uh, go out and try to score ninety, but. Uh, uh, but yeah, the other thing too is like, you know, Mississippi State. So Florida's 24th in, in offense right now. Mississippi State is 27th. So they're right, they're, they're right close. And, uh, and yeah, they've got the ability to offensive rebound better than, than, than just about anyone. Yeah. So like there's like, and I saw on ESPN there, so like there's four or five players in the SEC Player of the Year race. Three of them are, are bigs, Nick Richards, uh, Kerry Blackshear, and Reggie Perry. And Perry at 16.4 points and 10 points. 10 rebounds a game is the only one of those three averaging a double double. Uh, and he's doing it in one and a half minutes less than Blackshear and about three minutes less than Nick Richards. Uh, he's playing 29 minutes a game. Now, some of that is that he can get into foul trouble, but he's, he's a tough matchup for Kerry because even though, you know, he looks like an ox uh, and just has such a strong trunk. Um, he's really got good handles and like he can get out on the perimeter and is nice and, and athletic enough to kind of get past guys and screen and roll too. Yeah. And he's someone who draws a ton of fouls. So like when you see just the way that, that Blackshear has, has picked up fouls so much, uh, you've got to be concerned. I, I mean, I really think that Florida is probably going to go Omar Payne on, on Reggie Perry as much as possible. Just to yeah, you have to match athleticism with athleticism a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, it's that ability to like, like if Reggie Perry gets anywhere near the rim, he's such a good finisher. You know, you kind of have to hack him and to try to you know prevent those layups. Uh, but he also has the ability to get out and dribble a little bit. So uh, he's going to draw a lot of fouls. And I mean, just by his offensive rebounding, teams have had to you know hold them and gets fouls out. So he's just yeah draws a ton of fouls, and uh, uh, he is just a really impressive player. Uh, I, I think that he's kind of one of the like best kept. Like I'm seeing so much love for Richards from from Kentucky, like nationally right now. And, uh, you know, he's, he's played really well. Don't get me wrong, but I, I think Reggie Perry's a better player. And, uh, while I, you know, hope he doesn't go off against Florida. Uh, he is someone that I think people should look forward to seeing a little bit just from like a yeah. basketball fan standpoint. Yeah. I mean, when you go number for number again, I mean, Blackshear is better than Richards and, and Perry is better than Blackshear. And that's kind of the ranking of those three bigs. But I think so much of the like preseason hype gets baked into that discussion and the big question at Kentucky was, could Nick Richards take the next step? And he seems to have done so. 
And Reggie Perry, you're right, was kind of this forgotten guy who like went pro and ended up coming back. Um, you know, so like one thing New Mexico State would do is um, they just wouldn't switch off of him. Like they pretty much manned him up and almost it's almost like matchup defense, uh, which I thought was kind of clever because he's going to demand the ball in mismatches pretty consistently. But the other thing that they I like that they did is like they kind of when he caught the ball at the elbow or at the top, like they would dare him to kind of isolate because like he likes to do it because he can, he can dribble and, and kind of do that stuff a little bit, but it's definitely not like the strength of his game. And so it kind of would be interesting to see like, if it is Blackshear, if Carey just kind of uses veteran savvy to be like, all right, big fella, like, why don't you play me one-on-one a little bit? Yeah. And he's someone who has tried to become a little bit of a three point shooter. He's, not shot the three particularly well, uh, but, you know, he'll hit the occasional open one. Uh, but I, I, I do think you've got to just protect the rim first and, and where he'd be especially deadly is if he's getting offensive rebounds or if he's getting drop-off passes near the rim. I, I, I Like, that's just what you need to avoid at all costs. Uh, so if he yeah. wants to play one-on-one on the perimeter, I, I, I think you got to take your chances there and be content with that. And then the, the other thing that they can really do with you is, is that they have, uh, they've got a really good wing named Robert Woodard II, who I like a lot, uh, kind of a little bit like Keontae Johnson, but much bigger, um, much taller, um, a little more wiry. And then, uh, you know, those two guards are just tough, man, Nick Weatherspoon and Tyson Carter. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Like, I, I don't think that they're, like, particularly skilled. Uh, like, I don't think they, like – uh, they kind of blow you away with their like ability to like make reads or, or put together dribble moves. Uh, but they, uh, yeah, they can get those straight line drives. They can take contact. Uh, they've got good size. Uh, and yeah, once again, like in, in transition, they're just, because they're so strong. I mean, when they, when they get up to speed, uh, trying to body them up and, and, and move them off their straight line is, is, is very difficult. And uh, I, I don't see either as a, a great playmaker, uh, you know, D- Tyson Carter is a decent, uh, decent passer for sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, just not someone who I, I see as like a great threat to the ball, but uh, they also, you know, they know how to play with their big guys as well. So if they get the ball inside, like they're not just standing still, like trying to be three point shooters, which like neither of them are, are, are great. Uh, they, they score off cuts. Uh, they'll get in on the glass. I, I, I just think like you said, tough is the best way to describe them. So uh, Abdelado, I don't know if we, we need to get into him too much, but uh, just another another big that that really attacks the glass. Yeah, and he's definitely the better, you know, he's an even better shot blocker than Reggie Perry. Uh, well, Reggie Perry just has like obviously insane athleticism, but I think that I, I do has just like well, he's got great athleticism too. He's super long, but just shows really good like understanding of angles and, and timing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, offensively, he's someone who, uh, uh, knows his role and he'll, he'll hang by the rim and he'll get offensive rebounds. He'll get drop off passes. Uh, he doesn't try to do too much. He doesn't turn the ball over a ton or, or, uh, it doesn't take bad shots. Uh, he's just a really responsible kind of role playing five. And, uh, but he, you know, he rounds it out well. And, and it's someone that like, you know, they, they play two bigs, they play Reggie Perry and, and Abdul Adu together a lot. Uh, and it kind of works because both of them can uh, can defend their position. And then, yeah, offensively, it's like uh, Perry definitely has the ball more often. And 
Uh, but when he's if he gets it by the free throw line or something like that, like a dude's in the the short corner, he's near the rim. He's uh, he's making himself a score just by being big and being able to to catch lobs or or catch near the rim. So uh, he's someone who you're like probably not concerned about primarily, but he's someone like you'll see if Florida's breaking down if he's just like dunking the ball uncontested because he'll be the beneficiary of if Florida gets in rotation and the ball gets moving against them. Yep. Uh, it's going to be a big challenge. It's a huge game, I think, for the kind of way that the season goes. I, I tweeted that. I think it's it's probably the most important game Florida's played. Uh, it's a weird thing to say, but but it is, I think. You know, there's just a huge difference between 13 and 7 and 12 and 8. Uh, and, and State's playing great. You know, two really lopsided wins in their last five over Missouri and Georgia. Uh, obviously, a very talented Georgia team. And a Missouri team that clubbed Florida like a baby seal, uh, and then you know a win over a good Arkansas team. The one thing I'll say, and their two losses, by the way, in that stretch were both by one point on the road. Uh, the one thing I'll say about them uh, is that they only have one road win, and that was against Coastal Carolina. So uh, they've been a, a much better team at home or on neutral floors, uh, but you know certainly will be a big challenge for Florida. Yeah, I mean, you see where they played maybe their worst defensive game of the season or something close to it to, to go play another good offensive team. That's tough uh, to get out-rebounded a ton and, and get challenged on that end. Well, now you're playing the best offensive rebounding team you've seen all year uh, who could be the best offensive rebounding team in the country. So uh, yeah. I think when you see that that Florida's problems this year, or at least problems recently, have been uh, have been the defense and have been rebounding. Well, Mississippi State has the chance to exploit both of those things. Uh, I mean, one thing we didn't talk about it. We don't have to get into it. The podcast is, you know, getting up there in time. But uh, but Mississippi <laughs> State hasn't has not been a great, you know, has just hasn't been a great defensive team. Uh, they can get caught, but like they've got these great rim protectors. Other, you know, their other perimeter players are are not great. Uh, so Florida, I think that Florida is going to be able to score on Mississippi State. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Mississippi State is going to be tough to guard, and if Florida guards the first shot well and they don't secure the defensive rebound. I mean, Mississippi State's going to make them pay more than anyone. So uh, for that reason, it is it is a bit of a scary matchup. There's no question. It is. Big game uh, Tuesday night in the O-Dome. So we will be back. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed this listener question Bonanza, a really long show. Uh, you might not even get to the Miss State part before they play the game, but we uh, we do our show. So we'll be back. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye, everybody.